Well, good morning. It's great to see you here today. How are you guys doing? Everybody good? Yeah? Yeah? All right. Good, 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 good. Um, I'm going to tell you a quick story, true story. It happened in 1894 in the spring. Um, Boston went to Baltimore uh, to play an ordinary baseball game. But what happened that day was anything but ordinary. Oriole uh, John McGraw got in a fight with a third baseman from Boston. Don't know his name, but those two started fighting. And then the dugouts emptied. You've seen this, right? (laughs) And then it got worse because the people in the stands started fighting each other. It got even worse because someone set fire to the ballpark and the whole thing burnt to the ground. It got even worse. The fire spread and 170 buildings in Boston were completely destroyed. Now, have you ever gotten kind of in an angry outburst and you just kind of go off, and then you look around and there's this incredible amount of damage and you go, oh, oops. Yeah, I think we've all done that at some point. Today in Luke chapter 9, Jesus talks to his disciples, and he stops them from having an angry outburst. But before we get to Luke chapter 9, just real quickly, we want to review our journey through Luke so far. So we've covered the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, and we've seen Jesus um, accept his ministry from God the Father. We've seen his baptism. And then we've seen Jesus for several months. We've been walking with Jesus and the disciples as they do ministry in Galilee. And today, we're starting a new section in the book of Luke. As as people divide this up, you can see the line. This is the journey to Jerusalem. And we're going to cover some of this all the way through November 22nd. And then the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we're going to do a five-week series on Christmas and Advent. And we're really looking forward to that. That's going to be something that's for everyone. There are books that are going to be available for you to use in your home. Whether you're a single person, whether you have a, a big family, it doesn't make any difference. Um, some of the life groups are going to dig into that as well. It's going to be a great five-week series. And then after Christmas, we're going to do about seven more weeks, and we're going to complete Luke in seven weeks. And you're thinking, wait, we've been doing Luke for like almost a year now, <laughs> and we've gone through three out of seven sections. Well... We're going to cover just some of the most powerful teachings um, that Jesus gave us and some of the most powerful stories. Because after that, we're going to do something else. We're going to do something we have never done as a church. And we're going to start talking about this a little bit on November 15th. And so it's going to be a little vague. But for now, we're just going to call it this. I don't know if this is what it's going to be called. It's just... Steve's brain. We're going to call it, uh, for now, Rediscover Church, okay? Now, I know it sounds vague, and that's okay, because it's supposed to be that way for now, but here's what's happening. We are confident that God is leading us to do something new, and in fact, he's calling us to become something new. But for this to happen, for this to be led by God and not be just the thoughts of man, we all need to pray. All of us. And so, guess what we're going to do right now? We're going to pray. So, I'm just going to have maybe 
30 seconds of you praying, um, and then I'll lead us as we all continue to pray together. Let's bow and let's pray. God, we look forward to what you're leading us to do, to who you're leading us to become. Renew our vision, renew our passion as individuals and as a church family. May people be changed by you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking forward to November 15th to just begin this dialogue. November 15th is also going to be a great day. For this reason, we're going to have our ministry fair. Okay, so everybody make sure you're here on November 15th. And then the night before, make sure you're here for the Music and Mayhem concert. By the way, the only way you can get tickets is online um, for this. We aren't doing the tickets, the, the artists are. But if you have an issue, like you can't get tickets online, just call the office. Tell them you want tickets. They'll get them for you, and then you can come and pick them up that way on a Sunday or in the office or whatever. Um, and then also, men... Uh, the, the Friday before the Friday before, so November 6th, um, is the men's steak dinner. And we're excited that Roy Hall is going to be here, uh, former Ohio State um, and NFL receiver. Great, great motivational speaker. He's really passionate about making a difference in the community. We're thrilled to have him here. So a lot of things that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. But guess what? God has something for us today too, right? We're here. We're here to praise him and enjoy um, our time together. And I have to be really honest with you. Today's message is like my toes are still hurting from the first service. Um, so this is for me as much as it is for any of us. But let's not miss out what God has for us today. And it's, again, in Luke chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. So for a few minutes, let's just unpack some of the important teaching that we see in these verses. And just so you know, we're going to come back to verse 51 at the end of our service as we continue to prepare for communion together. But in verses 52 and 53, we see that the Samaritan people reject Jesus and the disciples. They say, you cannot travel through this land. Even though it would have saved them three days of travel, they said, we don't want you here. Now, the, the Samaritans were essentially Jewish people who, <clears throat> in one of the times of exodus and, and exile, that they had then begun to intermarry with people who were non-Jewish. And so they, rather than seeing each other as like half-brothers, they saw each other as half-blooded enemies. And there was a lot of hatred 
between these two groups. One of the times of year that was especially bad for them, there was a lot of tension, was during Passover. And that's what Jesus and the disciples were getting ready to do. They're headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and then, of course, Jesus will give his life. But the Samaritans, they don't want the Jews to go and celebrate Passover. This was such a contentious issue between them. In fact, one year, the Samaritans dug up people, their, their bones from the grave, and they put them all over the Jewish temple. That meant that the Jews could not go to the temple to celebrate Passover because those bones would desecrate the area, but even more, you weren't allowed to touch a dead body. So they were preventing the Jews from celebrating Passover. So the Jews, the next year, they went a little further. They actually burned down the temple of the Samaritan people. You kind of get the idea they don't like each other, don't you? I mean, a little strong here. And I I just kind of wonder, as I look at this passage, when I am rejected by somebody, you know, what's my first response? I have to tell you, honestly, it looks a lot more like what James and John are thinking than what Jesus is thinking. And verses 54 through 56 tell us, again, what the disciples are thinking. And remember, along with Peter, James and John had been up to the mountain with Jesus, and they saw him glorified, transfigured, and they see that Jesus is greater than anyone. He's greater than even Moses and Elijah who were there with Jesus. And so they're thinking, you know, Elijah twice called down fire from heaven when the enemies of Samaria were coming against him. So if Jesus is greater than Elijah, let's do that. That sounds awesome. And we'll take care of this problem once for all, once and for all. You know, it's no wonder that in Mark, he calls James and John the, the sons of thunder. And you kind of wonder, like the sons of lightning too, right? The fire from heaven thing, you know? What's really interesting is that the same John, son of thunder, later in the New Testament writes more about love than anyone. Well, anyway, instead of joining James and John's idea, Jesus rebukes them. So Jesus rebukes Peter earlier, he rebukes James, and he rebukes John, the three closest people to him. Doesn't that seem a little odd to us? I mean, you would think, Jesus, these are your best friends, right? Why are you rebuking them? Well, think of it this way. Jesus does not expect people who don't spend time with him, people who don't know him, to act as though they do. It just doesn't make sense for that. But he does expect people who know him, people who spend time with him, to act as he would act. And so he doesn't rebuke the Samaritans. He rebukes the people closest to him who should know better. A friend of mine, um, we were from the same home church. 
He's a pastor in the Dayton area. His name's Mike Tuttle. He happens to be Jordan, our worship pastor's um, uncle. He's a part of a presidential prayer team that meets locally to pray um, periodically for the president of the United States, whoever that happens to be. <clears throat> he was telling me that when uh, George W. Bush was president, that it was just packed. People were coming out all the time. And uh, he said, but as soon as Barack Obama became president, that the, the, the people stopped coming. And he said he was really disappointed. And I have to tell you, that's sad. And it's sad for at least two reasons, and I'm sure there are more, but it's sad, first of all, because we are supposed to pray for our leaders. It makes no difference if you voted for that person, whether you like that person, whether you don't. We are called to pray for our leaders and pray that God would use them. So, first of all, it's sad just because people evidently stopped thinking that was important. Second, let's assume, and I think it's a fair assumption, that those people who stopped coming felt the reason they didn't want to come is because they didn't really like this other person, this new president. And they, they really didn't think that it was important to pray for him because they didn't agree with them. They may have even thought, you know, this person's opposed to what I believe or this person is my enemy. And again, I'm not making any political statements. I'm saying I think this is probably what was happening. They were frustrated and things like that. If that's how you're thinking, if you believe that someone is opposed to you or someone is your enemy, guess what? They are automatically, by you being a follower of Jesus, they fall on your prayer list. Automatically. Because Jesus said, you pray for your enemies. So if you think someone's your enemy, guess what? They're number one on your prayer list. And honestly, think about it. You're asking God to do something. So doesn't it make sense that the person with whom you have disagreements should be the person for whom you would pray, knowing that God can change their heart? Or maybe our own? Some of you just went to politics. I mean, you're thinking I'm making political statements. This has nothing to do with politics. It was an illustration. <laughs> this has everything to do with followers of Jesus. And you know, there are two camps. But it's not defined by donkeys and elephants. The two camps are defined by, are you a follower of Jesus? Do you believe the word of God is true? Do you follow the Holy Spirit's leading in your life? Or don't you? Those are the two camps that we see as Christians, and that's it. And the way that Christians behave should be different. It should be greater because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. It doesn't matter who your enemies are. It doesn't matter what people do. It doesn't matter who opposes you. Jesus calls us to something greater. Instead of revenge or apathy or hatred, 
Jesus calls us to love. Now, when you hear that, I know love, it sounds pretty passive, doesn't it? It sounds like wimpy and weak. But if you've ever really loved someone or really been loved by someone, you know it's anything but that. Love is active. Love is a verb. Loving is hard. God's love was anything but passive. He loved the world so much that he gave his son to die for us. That's active. That's very hard. That's powerful. That is life changing. It wasn't long ago that we heard Jesus say these words in Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, What credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. The way that Jesus encounters these Samaritan people is is the way he encounters Samaritans all the time. In fact, in, in John, John tells us a story of Jesus and a Samaritan woman who was in a situation that was anything but good. She, she had many things in that culture against her, if you will. But Jesus goes and talks to her intentionally. And he breaks down all kinds of barriers and he brings hope and holiness to her life. And she repents and changes and goes and tells people all about this man, Jesus. There was a battle for her soul. But Jesus knew the battle wasn't with the woman. It was with the things that were happening in her life. It was a spiritual battle. In spiritual warfare, people are not the enemy. Now, that sounds really good. (laughs) I mean, intellectually, I get that, but I struggle with that. I do. It's really not my nature. But it's not about our nature. It's about the nature of Christ. But I'm I'm suspicious that many of you feel the same way, you know? And again, we're not alone. James and John struggled with this. The disciples must have been wondering what was going on. Just role play with me for a second. Maybe this is what the disciples were thinking. Okay, Jesus, 
you know, up till now, yeah, it's been great. We've been tracking with you. I mean, you, you called us to follow you, and we did that. And that makes us part of a, a group, a special group. We feel important and included and kind of powerful. And, and you've been healing people. You've been helping people. You've been teaching people. You've been showing us about who God really is. You even put the religious leaders who think they're just so holy in their place. And you let us know it's what's inside of us that's important. But recently, I do not understand what's been going on. For one thing, why do you keep talking about dying? That you're going to be turned over to the hands of men. What is that all about anyway? I mean, if you're going to be the leader, the ruler, maybe even the king, don't we need to overthrow those people who oppose you? Who oppose Yahweh? Who oppose the truth? Even though some of your teaching has been hard, I've tried to understand it. You tell us we have to serve everybody to be great. You tell us to welcome the people on the fringes of our society. You, you even hang out with tax collectors and sinners. And I know that includes many of us, so I at least understand part of that. But, but when you told us to hang out with outsiders, you surely didn't mean the Samaritans or, or the Romans. This is getting really complicated and confusing. Maybe it'll make more sense when we get to Jerusalem. I mean, that's an important place for us spiritually. We're going there to celebrate Passover. God's deliverance for our people. The overthrow of oppression. Moving us from being slaves to being sons. With Yahweh, God, as our Father. And, and maybe that's the time. You're going to establish your kingdom, your reign, in Jerusalem, as King David did. David was a king. He was a warrior. He fought for our rights. So when these half-breed Samaritans tell us that we're not welcome to pass through their land, we need to retaliate. After all, the reason they don't want us to go to Jerusalem is because they know we're going to worship and serve God and celebrate what he's done. This is not only physical oppression, this is spiritual oppression. This is prejudice. This is religious bigotry. We have our rights. More than rights, we have a mandate from Yahweh to follow and celebrate and to worship and remember him. But when we tell you what we think, you don't understand. And of all people, we thought you were there with us and for us. But instead, 
You tell us to calm down. You even rebuke us. Why don't you rebuke them? You won't let us confront them. And you certainly aren't confronting them yourself. Seriously, Jesus, what is going on? You've helped all these other people. Why don't you help us? Can't you do something? Don't you even care? It's hard. It's hard for us to get into the minds of people whether they lived 2,000 years ago or today. It's hard for us to place ourselves in the shoes of the Jews and the Samaritans. It's even hard for us to find a modern-day comparison in our culture. It just kind of really doesn't exist. Now, let's face it. Is opposition growing to Christianity in our country. Yeah, I think it is. It's naive to think that it's not. But it's still not what these people experienced. We just honestly have a hard time relating to this story as it is. Yes, we have our opposition, but it doesn't look quite like this. But for some people, some Christians who live in the Middle East today, however, the opposition is very real and it's very much like what they faced. In fact, in some ways, it's maybe worse. Because as you know, today there is persecution in our world, especially from ISIS. This extreme group sees Christians, or actually anyone who does not believe the way they believe, as their enemy, morally, physically, spiritually. Many of you know that when 21 Egyptian Christians knelt before their executioners on a Libyan beach, those men wearing orange jumpsuits were being killed for their faith in Jesus. However, you may not know this. While many people are understandably fleeing lands that are controlled by ISIS, there are some bold Christians who are staying there intentionally. There are even some Christians who are entering into those lands, determined to powerfully show the love of Jesus, knowing it will be the very last thing they do on this earth. These Christians, called people of the cross, are literally giving their lives to take the message of holiness and repentance, truth, forgiveness, and the good news of Jesus to the people of ISIS. They've been interviewed and a a group put together a video with their permission that's called a letter 
from the people of the cross to Isis. And the video is not graphic as such, but it is mature in its theme. It's, it's very intense. So if you need to, you feel free to close your eyes. Or if there's a child in here and a parent, you may want to have them close their eyes if that seems appropriate. Um, the audio track is nothing but instrumental music, so there's no problem with that. I, I just want us to see a response of these Christians. It's powerful. Well, there's more there, but <laughs> if you uh, want to catch that, you can, um, you can find that. <clears throat> on the web. Uh, basically, it ends with them. Uh, you see a picture of those gentlemen on the beach. Um, and then it just continues to talk about these people bringing love rather than hate, bringing hope. And it's powerful. And I have to be honest, when you watch that, do you think that seems a little radical? I mean, honestly. But when did we get the idea that Jesus wasn't radical? And following Jesus is radical. Now, I have a really hard time imagining that I would do what those Christians are doing. I mean, honestly, we might even ask are they crazy? Well, to be sure, they are crazy in love with Jesus. And they believe the good news of Jesus is the only way that hearts and lives will be truly changed. Today's message is a challenge for my heart, and maybe it is for yours. Yet it's a message filled with hope and great power because it's the message of the cross. And we're going to sing a song right now that reminds us of all the things that the cross implies, that all of us need to be forgiven. All of us need to be rescued from our sin. And it's not naive to think that love is the most powerful answer, because it is. Today, if God is calling you to respond, to pray, to surrender your life, to, to become a part of this body of believers, we invite you to come forward as we sing. And after we sing this song, we're going to speak just a little bit more about what Jesus did, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Let's stand and let's sing. Back to verse 51, just briefly, and then we're going to take communion. Think about this. The disciples want Jesus to respond with fire from heaven, to bring justice, to pour out God's wrath, to make the guilty pay. Well, Jesus does bring justice. And God's wrath is poured out, but not on the guilty. It's poured out 
on the only innocent lamb. See, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem not only to continue his teaching and to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, but primarily to go to the cross. And on this journey, more and more and more people turn away from him. And the more they turn away, the more determined he is to continue his mission. Because his love is powerful and determined and relentless. And Jesus calls us to that same kind of love. A love that is greater than hate. John, who wanted to call down fire on his Samaritan brothers, later writes this. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus is absolutely determined to defeat the enemy. But the enemy is not the Samaritans or the Romans. The enemy is sin and death. And so Jesus sets his face toward the costly road of victory. Today as we celebrate communion, we're going to take the emblems together in unity. We're going to watch a video, listening carefully and watching carefully. And as that video plays, the servers are going to come and they will hand out the emblems past the trays. And we would ask that you would take the the bread and just hold it. And take the cup and just hold it. And later, together after the video, we will take the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Let's watch this video and be grateful for the true love that died for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and please forgive us when we rush through communion and just forget um, one of the main reasons you want us to uh, think about is just just the incredible price that Jesus paid for us on the cross we want to we get caught up a lot of times in clean gold or silver crosses and even nice wooden looking crosses but it was a violent time and it was bloody and it was horrible and um we just forget what all the disciples went through at that time and just just provoke in our minds every time just what we need to, to remember what to think about it and uh, to help us not to just rush through it. We thank you so much for the fact that you provided us an opportunity to come before you for eternity and spend time with you to, to have you look at us and not see our sins but the righteousness because of what Christ did on the cross for us. We thank you. And words cannot express it enough. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.